Lovitz with room to roam. Lovitz along the 18. Shot. Score! Hawkinson! A second-year upstart arrives late and upends the defending second seed in the MLS Eastern Conference. I'm talking about Nashville SC. I'm also talking about Luke Hawkinson and Jack Mayer. The boys in gold salvage a late winner against Toronto, then wrap up the weekend with a somewhat more disappointing draw against CF Montreal. We're here to recap it all for you. Welcome to the Club and Country Podcast, the podcast of record for Nashville SC coverage from the two guys who've covered the club longer than anyone in their respective disciplines. Thanks to ESPN 94.9 for the highlight, for Moon Taxi for the music, and alongside Tim Sullivan, I'm Wes Bowling. Tim, thank you for joining me today oh i wouldn't have it any other way Wes. let's get this thing going a two-game week a four-point week for the boys in gold two more deficits two more comebacks two different feelings after a win against toronto and then a draw with montreal yeah the games followed largely the same script there's a little bit more action in the, in the toronto game but nashville simply ran out of time and, and more importantly couldn't convert the opportunities that it did create against montreal in order to get all three points in that one if you were a scriptwriter and you said, I'm going to write this team going behind six times in their first 10 games, five of them they're going to come back and at least get a result, I would say you're incredibly unoriginal and you have no shot of writing for Ted Lasso or any of those soccer shows <laughs> out there. And yet, here we are. It's just the, the repetition is incredible. On one hand, you have to say the resiliency is amazing. You always know they have a comeback in them. On the other hand, they're only overcoming adversity, Tim, that they're imposing on themselves. Yeah, absolutely. The preference would be you get the goals, but you don't have to use them to come back from a deficit, right? You build up those leads and then you don't have to worry about it. Nashville hasn't been scored on while ahead this year, which is crazy. All opposing goals have either extended or given the opponent a lead. There's a gold nugget for you. Forget the ones we're going to say later because yeah. we're going to get into some, some more granular stuff. I thought about that, but you're right. Mm-hmm. And I'm just recounting every goal. Yeah, no, that's yeah, incredible. It, yeah, it's 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 a team that that has the ability to score goals, and and once they do score goals enough to get ahead, at least they don't give them up. But it's been all too rare that they've been the ones scoring first. And those late goals came from Jack Mayer and Luke Hawkinson in the 3-2 win over Toronto. The second 3-2 stoppage time winner in the club's MLS history. First at home, you might remember the Orlando match to close last season. And then a stoppage time equalizer by Abu Dunladi leveled terms with Montreal three days later. It is the latest goal in NSC MLS history in the 95th minute. So the second draw this season with the artists formerly known as the Impact. But now, Tim, the pressure is on Nashville. They're unbeaten at home still, but four of those seven results have been draws. Yeah, the adage is that you want to win at home and draw on the road. And, and Nashville has managed to draw a lot of games basically no matter where they are. That speaks positively of the road form, but story is not so good in Nissan Stadium when you're uh, escaping with draws a little too frequently. Is the margin for error at home gone now? That's the question we'll discuss in our Embrace Consensus segment. It might turn into a little bit of Embrace debate today. As I think we have different takes on this one, and we'll talk about it. Because undoubtedly, regardless of exactly where you fall on that line, 
the pressure's higher because Nashville hasn't secured the three points against teams like Montreal. The homestand does continue this weekend against Philadelphia, which sits third in the East. And today, Tim, a treat as we get to sit down with, I think, probably the ultimate authority on soccer in the city of brotherly love. Yeah, Jonathan Tannenwald is one of the longest tenured and, and most credible soccer reporters anywhere in the country. He's the president emeritus of North American Soccer Reporters, which I have uh, succeeded him on the board of and very excited to chat with him a little bit about the union an engaging conversation about the defending supporters shield winners but before that in our early shout we'll break down sterling performances by nsc draftees as we mentioned a brace from luke hawkinson a goal and an assist on the week for jack mayer and then we'll try to explain why we're actually kind of covering two teams there's first half nashville sc and their second half, Nashville SC. A stark contrast between what this team accomplishes in the first 45 and the last 45. That's obvious. And the score lines are obvious. 10 of their 13 goals have happened in the second half. Six goals have happened after the 75th minute. But why? What does it mean? Why is Nashville SC making itself a victim of such strong discrepancy? We're going to get into that. And then we have to talk, of course, about Yonder Cadiz, whose loan was officially extended through the end of this year. If you followed this show, not extremely surprising news, but it does have certain implications for Nashville at the striker spot with a healthier crew coming back now and a potential transfer coming in. So we'll get into that. Then we'll have the interview with Jonathan Tannenwald. As we mentioned, then we will embrace some sort of debate, perhaps, for once, as, as we'll ask the question of whether Nashville has lost its margin for error at home heading into the rest of the year. Some tremendous mailbag questions, whether it's about formations, personnel, lots of really good stuff coming in that we will discuss, and then we'll close with outside in looking around Major League Soccer. The biggest breakthroughs, who are the biggest disappointments, and are both sustainable? We'll get into that just a little bit before closing with our content recommendations and bold predictions for Philly. But without further ado, let's get into our early shout. Mayer deals right side for Leal. His cross off a defender. Rebounds back out to Leal. To Mayer, back post, cross, score! Abu Dunlady! Try to turn the lights out on this team. And they will fight in the dark. 1-1. A win over Toronto, a draw with Montreal. Abu Dunlady capped the ladder with a goal you just heard, courtesy of ESPN 94.9 in our early shout first. Let's get into what happened this past week. The fourth and fifth comeback results this season. Nashville has now stolen seven points from losing positions. If they'd lost, Tim, every match they'd trailed this year, the boys and gold would be tied with Inter-Miami on points back in 12th place behind Cincinnati. But because of that late resiliency, instead we're seeing a somewhat different picture. Yeah, they all count no matter when you score them. So so that's worked out very well for Nashville SC. It's interesting because this team did have a reputation, at least in the first USL season, but kind of in the second one too, for not really coming back to earn wins. And that was kind of a red herring because they largely didn't fall behind in the first place like they have done so frequently this year. So it is new territory in a way, but it's something that when you add that kind of tool to the arsenal, it's another good piece to, to put together a solid season by the end of 34 regular season games. Yeah, the club that tied the league lead in clean sheets a year ago has found itself down in six of ten matches. But two comebacks from those two deficits this past week. Toronto went up 1-0 and 2-1. Montreal took a 1-0 advantage in the 63rd minute. So now four straight matches without a clean sheet, the longest in Nashville's MLS history. And you've heard some pundits nationally start to use the word 
soft. I think that's a really harsh descriptor for a team that's Mm -hmm. still pretty solid defensively, but there's no questioning, Tim, that they are giving up more goals than they did in past years. What, what's the difference here? What are we seeing? I don't know. It seems like ages ago that we were talking about this team hadn't been scored upon in four and a half games. And some of it is personnel. Obviously, Walker Zimmerman was not on the pitch uh, at all on Wednesday and we only saw a short stint on Saturday. So that plays a role for some of it. Some of it is Nashville wanting to be a little bit more expansive than they have been in previous years. And we saw that in the two years of USL as well. Gary Smith wanting to be a little bit more exciting and then goal scoring rather than worrying about saying, OK, we can win a bunch of one nothing games. But that means we have to win a bunch of one nothing games because we need to keep a shutout to win so there are multiple factors going into it but at the end of the day the the name of the game is scoring and winning and Nashville has done a pretty good amount of scoring and it has not done quite as much winning as you would have liked I'll tell you what it could just be some master conspiracy to try to get fans hooked on these second halves uh, with the (laughs) The, the, the Toronto game absolutely had an element (laughs) of that no doubt we would never suggest anything so cynical from this club uh, or, or self-defeating, but uh, it, it has been certainly exciting. I know I have, I have a good buddy or two who've taken their kids to games in, in particular and just get totally caught up in the frenzy that is these second halves. And part of that frenzy for Nashville SC against Toronto was the first career goals for Jack Mayer and Luke Hawkinson. Of course, Luke followed up that first goal with a second just a few minutes later. Crazy stat here. The second time in three matches that Nashville had a player earn a brace from the 80th minute on. We're not a live sports bureau here, but I don't think that's probably happened before (laughs) in Major League Soccer. Yeah, I know that Nashville has only had, I think they only had one brace prior to Hani's against Atlanta. So there's uh, certainly not a wide range of of opportunities for that to have happened. Can you name when that brace happened? Uh, Hani against Houston. Why would I test you? Why would I test your knowledge on that? Of course, of course, (laughs) not even a pause, complete recall there. The scouting and loan decisions made by Mike Jacobs and this NSC front office continue to pay off. Uh, Drafting Mayer, drafting Hawkinson, who, by the way, was the latest draft pick in 2020 to even sign with an MLS club. I believe it was 10 teams passed on their picks before Nashville Mm -hmm. took Luke Hawkinson. A great decision to draft him. They loaned him out to Charlotte for the bulk of last season. They loaned Jack Mayer out to San Diego here of late before bringing him back in. The loan decision to send Mayer to San Diego seems to have paid off incredibly. He was getting like 100 touches a game as a center back with San Diego Loyal, and that's really helped him on the ball. He's always been a good ball-playing center back, but it's kind of the perfect fit for what Nashville needed him to work on. And, of course, there was not the expectation that he would be recalled as quickly as he was, but when he was recalled, he was ready to step into the lineup. Um, From Hawkinson's perspective, he was ready to participate from the beginning of this year, has gotten spot minutes here and there, but the bigger his role has gotten, the better he's played. Is there a position where it's more vital to just get reps game in and game out than center back? Just reading the game, taking confident yeah. touches. I think you could make some arguments for other positions, but I, I think I might lean toward, toward center back in the situation that Mary was in. Yeah, that's probably actually a really good shout because uh, a winger, for example, Hawkinson, there are individual one-on-one battles that you can kind of compartmentalize into what their own thing, whereas a center back needs to be engaged all game, regardless of whether or not he's on the ball, regardless of whether or not the ball is coming his direction or going the opposite direction. So yeah, I think that's probably a pretty good shout, obviously goalkeeper, but the, mm-hmm. the number of trials that are relevant for a goalkeeper over the course of an individual game is so much smaller that it's, it is probably center back that needs the most game reps, or maybe, maybe that kind of holding midfield position mm-hmm. that. Dax McCarty and Anibal Godoy play too for similar reasons. Yeah, your backbone positions. Yeah. And Keeper was the other one that immediately came to mind for me. But you could tell so much more confidence on the ball for mm-hmm. Mayer than in limited action last season. 
And uh, he led the team in clearances both of those matches this past week, too, in addition to doing what he did uh, going forward. Uh, some gold nuggets for you. We simply have to, to compare and mainly contrast Nashville's performances in the first half and the second half. We have a large enough sample size now to where I think there are some stark patterns that are emerging. So first, we'll start with the first half and then tell you what's happened or not happened in the first 45 minutes for Nashville. Then we'll get into the second half and then bring a, a couple more contrasts to light. Nashville has yet to score inside the first 20 minutes of a match this year. The earliest goal they've scored was their opener against FC Cincinnati, season opener, in the 20th minute. And they've now gone 190 minutes without a goal in the first half, dating back to Randall Ayal's tally in the 35th minute against Austin. Just three goals in the first half this season. They've conceded seven times. So those are the goal numbers. But, but getting deeper, Tim, tactically, are you seeing anything that explains Nashville's slow starts, or is it more just a mentality issue of just being a little shaky on the ball and having to feel their way into matches? Yeah, I don't, really don't think there has been necessarily a consistent through line aside from one thing. They're creating a fair number of chances early in games, and the finishing just has not been up to snuff. Anibal Godoy and Gary Smith both talked about it after the game Saturday evening, and I don't think there's anything that you can look at and say this is the reason for it because these are guys primarily playing the majority of minutes, even early in games, that have been fairly average or better finishers over the course of their MLS careers, and it's kind of a situation where maybe Maybe these guys are just all suffering a little bit of bad luck at the same time. And that does bring you to the question, is there a reason that this all happening at the same time? Is there something um, kind of internally wrong with what the process is? But I, I really don't think that's the case. It just seems to be a bit of bad luck. I dug into the numbers expecting to be able to make a case that Nashville had much less time on the ball in the first half. And they've been getting on the ball more in the second half because they've been trailing in so many of those, yada, yada. Possession's actually even. They have about 50% possession in the first half on average, 50.1% in the second half. So they're on the ball just about as much. Uh, Big and, improvement. Yeah, <laughs> massive, right? That 0.1%. So it, I think that backs up your point, right? Chances are coming. Possession is there. And yet 62% of their shots are coming in the second half. Only one time has Nashville taken more shots in the first than in the second. And that was the Miami scoreless draw. Yeah, and some of that is because when they do get these early deficits under their belts, they need to take a bunch more shots. However, I, I looked at it and we talked about it a little bit last week is not too much of their expected goal production has happened when they're facing a deficit, which is usually what you would expect. Mm -hmm. They've been producing expected goals consistently, kind of regardless of scoreline. So it is a lot of that finishing. And it is a lot of the things that, again, come down to a bit of luck. Yeah, it feels almost like calibration to me, that they're they're getting honed in on their target in the second half. Ten of their 13 goals have happened this season in the second half. We mentioned the stat earlier, but six goals now after the 75th minute. And in their last four, and we're throwing a lot of numbers at you, in their last four contests, five goals scored after the 80th minute. It almost seems to me, Tim, to be a product of regression to the mean, that that they're they're taking their shots, they're taking their shots, the chances are there. And then late in matches, they're able to finally calibrate and hit. Is it that to you? Is it tactical adjustments in the late moments? Is it fresh legs coming in like Dunlady's, yeah. Hawkinson's, or is it just luck at this point? 
No, I totally agree with the first part that you said, although the fresh legs argument is kind of interesting to me because Gary Smith really does like to take some speed and run at tired defenses late in games. Mm -hmm. That probably does play a little bit of a role in it, but that regression to the mean is is nice. It would be nicer if you could use it to uh, get some of those ones out of the way early because as we discussed at the top, when Nashville scores first, opponents aren't scoring and they really aren't generating a whole lot either. That was the the killer too. When you look at the Toronto match, you know Toronto was o four and one when conceding first, and you thought to mm-hmm. yourself, if Nashville would just get one in the first 20, 25 minutes, it's a team that's that's likely going to fold as they did late against yeah, Nashville yeah. anyway, uh, of course. But Montreal too, I think it was the kind of game. And speaking with some folks up there on on the Ball is Round podcast and with uh, with Paul Vance who joined us last week, their perception was this could be five nothing if Nashville gets up early. Uh, it's a Montreal team that was depleted that uh, had was outshot 27 to 4 by DC. Nashville ended up putting yeah. 21 shots on him too and yet it just it wasn't to be in that match. And I I think looking back I still feel if a couple of those early chances fall, it's probably a pretty clear Nashville win. Yeah, and you saw some pretty good opportunities. I noticed watching the first half that Nashville had all sorts of room to run and in the midfield, they were able to run right at the back line. And we saw a couple of bad decisions, whether that was a Hani Mukhtar layoff pass that he shouldn't have made Alex Muehl trying to cut onto his left rather than playing it to one of his fellow attacking players. But again, it's not a consistent through line that kind of describes all the different shots that kind of go awry. So it is something where if one of them hits, I think this club has a real opportunity to to kind of hit that next gear once they get a little bit of confidence. It is, of course, a game of moments more so even than patterns. Nashville looking to find some moments earlier in matches, and they might have to find some early and often against the Philadelphia Union. The defending Supporter Shield winners head to Nissan Stadium. 7 p.m. kickoff Saturday, not 7.30. 7 o'clock, make a note, it's usually 7.30. I don't know if they're trying to get people out so they get the fireworks set up for the next day for uh, for the city. Who knows? <laughs> uh, it's the second-best team Nashville's played this season, third in the East. They're unbeaten in their last eight contests, and in that span, they're the third-best team, not just in the East but in Major League Soccer. Nashville 11th in that span. All those things are great, and they're playing high-quality soccer, but Tim, you still get the feeling they've lost just a bit of their bite from last year's Supporter Shield season. Yeah, you don't have U.S. Youth International Brendan Aronson anymore. He's playing in Europe. You don't have U.S. Full International Mark McKenzie anymore. Guess where he is? Playing in Europe. Um, So they are undefeated in eight, but it hasn't felt as good as the Union felt at all times, basically, last year. And it includes a draw against Chicago, which is almost certainly the worst team in the East over that span, and a 1-0 home win against the Columbus team that's also taken a big step back from last year. And the Union didn't generate a whole lot of expected goals. They didn't generate a whole lot of anything in the game against Columbus. And um, when Columbus has hit the road this year, I believe they're still winless. So it's not like that you're taking down a giant by beating them one nil at home. So while the union still looks like a pretty good team, it's easy to see cracks that you couldn't see last year. The best team, though, to come to Nashville easily so far in this homestand. Well, let's take you to the journalist who knows more about the Philadelphia Union. He's won the proverbial supporter shield of Philadelphia Union coverage, and he is Jonathan Tannenwald. Enjoy our discussion with the soccer reporter from the Philadelphia Inquirer. Nobody has more closely chronicled the rise of the Philadelphia Union than Jonathan Tannenwald. He covers the club for the Philadelphia Inquirer, where he has helped lead sports coverage since 2006. A University of Pennsylvania grad, he also covers in WSL, the U.S. national teams, and Philly's vibrant college sports scene. Jonathan, thanks for joining us for the first time. It is my pleasure. This club came up from nothing back in 2010, missed the playoffs five of its first six seasons, and yet a decade later 
has one of the clearer playing and talent development identities in Major League Soccer. Simply put, what were the keys to that growth? Those of your listeners who uh, have been around this league for a long time, and in fact, I know I have a couple of friends who work and have worked over the years in, in Nash- at Nashville who will hear this story and laugh because it, mm-hmm. it, some of them were around for it. When they were launched, their CEO and sort of chief of everything was Nick Sakevich, who had previously run the Tampa Bay Mutiny and the New York, New Jersey Metro Stars. And he and I didn't exactly get along. And one of the reasons why we didn't get along is because I didn't think he did the greatest job in the world of running the team. So after an amount of time at this point, it's been long enough that I actually forget which year it was. He was finally run out. And after they did that, they brought in Ernie Stewart to be the team's sporting director. And he helped really accelerate. They had launched the Youth Academy already. That was Nick's doing in some vision involved. And it was, it's good. What It's very good what they have. It includes a full-time high school in the Philly suburbs. And the Union were one of the first teams in the league to really go that far in on it, just to their credit. But Stewart really came in and sorted it out and set it on a clear path toward here's how you develop players here are the standards you need to have. And here's how you really get this machine cranking. So he leaves after a couple of years to be the U.S. Soccer Federation sporting director after the Trinidad debacle and everybody gets canned rightly and so on. Mm-hmm. And in comes the guy who I think is the most responsible for where the union are right now, who is Ernst Tanner, who is the current sporting director. And he came from Red Bull Salzburg and is really the... The, bra- he, the brains behind this idea of the union, not just developing guys, but developing guys, knowing where to sell them, knowing how to sell them, et cetera, um, and getting the deals done as he did for Brendan Aronson and Mark McKenzie. Now, it's not, you know, obviously the Red Bull global empire has been extremely good at finding and developing young players. Not that it has been the benefit of their New York team, obviously, which they've mostly <laughs> ignored, but when when Ernst was in Salzburg, they won the UEFA Europa Youth League. And before that, he was at Hoffenheim in Germany, where he um, developed a lot of really uh, guilty Sigurdsson, I believe, was one. The list is long of guys who were at Hoffenheim under his watch. And then at Salzburg under his watch, who have gone on to Leipzig and to Liverpool and all manner of other big time places. Sadio Mane, Bobby Firmino, et cetera. It's lots and lots and lots of names. And he worked with some American guys at Hoffenheim, too. So we knew a little bit about the American player. And he's come in here. He's done a terrific job with the academy. They have developed not just not just developed quantity of guys. I mean, you can you can run a youth academy that develops a bunch of straight line runners, center backs, defensive midfielders, et cetera. But you look at the quality of player they've produced. Brendan Aronson, Anthony Fontana, Paxton Aronson. Now Quinn Sullivan, who just made his first MLS start a couple of days before we recorded this show. They're producing players with real technical quality. And that, I think, is a great, great compliment to them. The other guy I'd mentioned, I should mention, is Richie Graham, who's one of the co-owners of the team. He's the guy who really puts the money into the youth academy. He's the one who who had the vision to say, we can do what Ajax does in the United States. And he's the one who went out and got Ernst and is, is deserves a lot of credit. You mentioned the academy. Obviously, that's a huge piece of what has made the union successful over these past few years. Was it really Ernst coming in to, to kind of kickstart that initiative? And are the union more interested in, in finding the best players around and kind of sliding into their academy system? Or is it really a true developmental system where they they kind of take unmolded clay and really turn these guys into significant professional prospects. I think I think that 
Um, look, I, as I said, the wheels of the Academy were in motion before Ernst got here. Mm-hmm. Brendan Aronson, who your listeners know now because of his strong play for the U.S. senior national team, the union knew who he was when he was 12 was when he started coming around. So it, it, it wasn't just Ernst, but there's a, a, a clarity and a sense of purpose that, that Stewart had. But Ernst, Ernst sort of took a holistic look at this league when he came in and said, we're not going to spend the most money because we're not allowed to. I added editorially. Um, how can we win? And he said, well, he one of, he said he one of the first things he said publicly when he came here was the union are very good with the ball. They are not so good without the ball, defending it in transition. That's what I'm going to focus on. And now they play this counter-pressing 4-4-2 diamond that is akin to what Salzburg and, and the Red Bull system plays. Leipzig plays a 4-2-3-1 because they can they have the money to go out and get top players that the union don't have. So the union play this wingerless 4-4-2 diamond, and it works mostly. And it is produced. The most remarkable thing to me is that it produced results. Obviously, it won them their first trophy in team history. Mm-hmm. But it is it is entertaining. It's fun. This team is fun to watch. They have some character and some personality and some talent, and that's worth something, too. I'm a hopeless romantic, etc. <laughs> this team's fun to watch. That ca- I think that counts for something. You know. It totally counts for something. And two players who have been particularly fun to watch go from, you know, people in MLS circles like us knowing about them now for a few years to being, you know, known by casuals because of their work now with the U.S. Men's National Team and in Europe. And that's Brendan Harrison and and Mark McKenzie, two products of, of this development pipeline. And they go abroad. And I think a lot of people say, look, good for Philly. They're following the model they should be following. But how in the world are they going to sustain this level of excellence if if they're selling you know, guys like that? Is this a Red Bull situation where you know, they're not going to be able to bring in like-for-like replacements and they're going to be you know, just trying to be a budget team? And clearly that's not the case because of this academy pipeline that's, that's coming up and more talent coming in. Um, how have you seen that Union is positioned to sustain its growth after losing Aronson and McKenzie? And if you want to get, you know, into the roster itself, who has, yeah. has done the heavy lifting to, to pick up the slack for those guys? Well, I think, first of all, when it comes to center back, Jack Elliott's going to be an all-time story in this league. He was the 77th overall draft pick the year he turned pro. And he's been, like, people ask me, oh, I, I, I want to buy an Aronson jersey, but I know he's not going to be here forever. This is Philadelphia. It's a very parochial town. They want to buy the jersey of the guy who's going to be here for 30 years and play nowhere else in his entire life, you know? <laughs> So I tell them to buy a Jack Elliott jersey because he's not a big star. He's not, um, you know, he's neither an attacking player nor famous nor a hot young prospect who's going to get sold to Europe. He's not but, on the scuffed pod. Right. He's right. He's but he's a guy who's, who's here for a long time. Right. He's a real anchor of this team. You don't want to buy a Bedoya jersey because he's older. You don't want that. I can't tell people what jersey to buy, really. But but Jack Elliott is that guy, mm-hmm. you know. Jacob Glesnes has been terrific. As everybody has seen, he can shoot the ball from 40 yards at the top corner, but he's also a very good centerman defensively. Um, the big signings that they've made have been Jamiro Montero, who's sort of the conductor in the midfield. He does as good as he can be on the ball. The stuff he does when people are not paying attention to him is terrific. And he just fills up the box score every game. And the new guy is Daniel Gazda, who has not really played much yet because he was on Hungary's Euro squad until he suffered a knee injury. 
And he's, to me, the missing piece because this system is at its best when your number 10 is a shooter, not just a passer. Montero's not a shooter by default psychologically. Mm -hmm. Brendan Aronson was not a shooter by default psychologically until Jim and more recently Jesse Marsh really got it in his head. But um, Gazag is, and they need that because it is going to significantly affect how opposing defenses play them and open up space for Casper Shabilko and Sergio Santos and Corey Burke, who are their strikers, to go to work, which they need that because otherwise teams just pack, pack, pack it in defensively deep and sit there and dare the union to shoot from 20 yards. Well, then go find somebody who will shoot from 20 yards. You know, you mentioned how how Ernst makes the system work and sustainable and so on. This is something that I have observed in the many years that I've covered this league. Very few teams have mastered the factual the formula for winning an MLS. Have a strong academy, develop your good young guys, sell them for lots of money, use that money to go buy the DPs that are going to win you trophies alongside your next set of homegrown players. And then have two or three guys sprinkled in your roster who've been around for a little while and are the guys who run the locker room. Nobody's done that yet. It's like Toronto's come closest over the years. You think about the number of homegrown guys that they've had and their top-level DPs, Javinko, Altador, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Vasquez is another, another good one. Atlanta flubbed it on the academy thus far. Chicago egregiously has flubbed it on the academy thus far. Houston has flubbed it on the DPs. The Galaxy have come close, but they haven't won anything yet. Maybe this will be the year they finally do that they've sorted their front office out. LAFC hasn't been around long enough. Seattle and Portland haven't really done it with the academies. Who's going to get Who's going to do it? Is it going to be New York City FC? Doesn't look like it until they start spending on DPs again. Nobody's done it yet. The academies are out. The teams, the teams that have good academies, and yeah, look, uh, one more for the list. Uh, we know that FC Dallas has this outrageously good academy. Their ownership has plenty of money. They have not bought a big star in eons. Who's going to get the formula right? And will it be the Philadelphia Union? And why is the answer no? Because their ownership is not going to spend on on mm-hmm. on, on match-winning DPs. That is the, the fear. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems like with a guy like Jim Curtin at the helm, they have certainly the right coach in place to, oh, to yes. maybe help overcome some of that stuff. Oh, yes. has, has there been any credibility to some of these rumblings that European teams are interested in? Obviously, um, his contribution to what this team has been able to do has been so important. How has he individually kind of been that piece that takes the takes the Ernst Tanner project to the next level, for example? Well, I don't know. For I can't tell you for certain that Team X was for sure in on him because I don't know. Right. I, I do know that, you know, I, he's very close friends with Jesse Marsh. Mm-hmm. has been since they played together in, in in MLS many years ago now. Jim won't like it being many years ago, and frankly, neither do I, because I covered <laughs> both as players. Um, but Jesse's success, even more than Bob Bradley's, has finally kicked the door down for European teams to see that Americans can coach the sport of theirs. And they're seeing what Jim Curtin can do. Um, and, and Jesse, I'm sure, is recommending him around a little bit. And, you know, uh, there's some turnover at – Salzburg because Marsh is going up to Leipzig. So that was one of the things that got floated around. Would Salzburg come calling for Jim Curtin? Ultimately, they did not. But he has said, you know, he, 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 like any player who wishes to go play in Europe someday, would love to go manage in Europe someday when the time is right. 
the time is not going to be right for him for a while because he's got young kids in school and he knows mm-hmm. that. But again, what Jesse has done is open the door a little bit here to in a very good way. I'm very happy it has happened. And someday I think he might someday he might go be a potential U.S. national team candidate. Mm-hmm. And I'll get into why it has to do with why he, he was successful with the union. I don't necessarily believe that you have to be a former player to be a successful manager, but he can relate and he can teach the young kids about what it's like to play in this league. And he can help explain. He's a great communicator. He can help explain to the international guys. This is what it's going to be like for you to go to Houston in July and to be on a six hour flight coach class to LA and so on and so forth. His predecessor, John Hackworth, who coached the U S under 17 has had success at Louisville city and so on. When he was here, was very good at coaching the young kids and very good at coaching some of the, some of the veteran Americans really liked him. The foreign guys didn't. They just didn't think he was that great shakes. Well, Curtin's, gave, Curtin's able to coach the, the veteran Americans, the young guys, and the foreigners equally well. And we've seen, I think, over time that that has been the, not the dichotomy, the trichotomy, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that split has been happened before in MLS. That's not nothing unusual. We've seen that Greg Vanny can coach Chicharito just as well as he can coach Efrain Alvarez. We've seen uh, Gio Savarese can deal with the great diversity of Portland's roster. Brian Schmetzer in Seattle, the same. Oscar Pereja in Orlando. We see these similarities across the league. Jim will tell you that when he started out, he was not the world's greatest tactician. He benefited. He benefits from having a sporting director who sets the tactical playbook. It was Ernie Stewart previously with a 4-2-3-1 that was very Dutch style and rigid. And now it is Ernst Tanner with this wingerless diamond 4-4-2 counterpress. But with some flexibility, if you need to go to a 4-2-3-1 to beat somebody, then the game put El Sino out there, beat somebody off the dribble, they will do it. But I, 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 Kurt, Jim is a better tactician than he used to be. But it is because he has had the time to learn under sporting directors who have been willing to set the tone tactically for how the organization plays. Jonathan, if you'll be willing for a second to indulge sure. me in, uh, and play the role that my wife normally plays in, in my <laughs> life and tell me if I'm crazy. Uh, no team has more clean sheets in Major League Soccer dating back to the start of last season than Philadelphia and Nashville. They're, they're one and two in MLS. And yet, when I look at this match this weekend, it screams everything but scoreless affair. I mean, I think we see goals in this. Now, part of that is, you know, Chicago or Philadelphia coming off a 3-3 draw with Chicago. Nashville conceding a little more here lately than than they have been. But, you know, look at the stats, and, and Nashville's created nearly double the chances that Philadelphia has. They've taken more shots on target by, again, nearly double. And yet, Philadelphia has scored more goals, seems to be extremely efficient in taking advantage of its chances. So am I crazy? Do you see a lot of goals in this one? And what is it that has driven this Philadelphia attack when it's it's not necessarily a quantity or a frequency thing? They just seem to be deadly efficient. If I am here to play the role of your wife, you're crazy. <laughs> you're not crazy. Um counterpressing teams don't mind having forty percent of the possession. Mm-hmm. They don't like it necessarily, but they don't mind it. They're built for that. Would I prefer the union to outshoot little teams a little more often? Sure. So would Jim Burton. They have been without Gazdag, who's been injured. They've been out without Jose Andres Martinez, who's their starting number six defensive midfielder because he's been at the Copa America. Whether he plays this weekend or not, I don't know. I would be surprised, but it's not impossible. They've been without Anthony Fontana, who's been dealing with a concussion. 
So they've been a little shorthand. And they're going to be in a very ornery mood because they hadn't given up three goals in a game in a long time. And then they went out and did it in fairly ugly fashion against Chicago in a rainstorm with an own goal and so on against a really bad team. Now, on top of all that, probably the number one reason why I think there will be goals this weekend is that it's only going to be 75 degrees of kickoff instead of 105. Mm-hmm. It was going to be 105, forget it, which is going to be in much of the country, as we know. Yeah, nice change of pace for Nashville. And Right. Now, it's not going to be it's not going to be overly sweltering where you all are. That will help the quality of play. Now, I'm going to throw one more wild card out there as I look very quickly up a few things here. The guy you need to talk to this week is CJ Spong. And you could potentially talk to David Akam, too, if you'd like. Mm-hmm. Um, Nashville has been quite the outpost over the years for former Philadelphia Union players. I don't know why. I do know that uh, some of them might hold a little bit of a grudge against their former employer. <laughs> CJ Spong. would never, right? CJ <laughs> would ride. Right. <laughs> David Akam would genuinely not, I don't think. Yeah. But CJ might just, and Jim will know that. I don't know what their pregame hellos are going to be like. I suppose we'll all find out together because they have not, they were going to play each other last year, obviously, but then Nashville had to withdraw from the tournament down in Orlando. So we'll see. Um, you know, it's not quite as union alumni heavy as it used to be. I think Ken Trebet's not there anymore, right? And, and right. Derek Jones was the other big one, really mm-hmm. big one, Union Academy product that is now down in Houston. But yeah, I will be interested to see what kind of a burr uh, in his saddle CJ has this weekend. Oh, we will too. And it, it should be an interesting showdown. It's always fun to meet an MLS opponent for the first time, even one that I think a lot of Nashville fans will feel they know fairly well because of the connections between the clubs and because, of course, Philadelphia has been so prominent on the MLS stage after winning Supporter Shield last season. Jonathan, thanks so much for spending time with us today and uh, hope you enjoy covering the uh, the match this weekend. Thank you. I will be sat on my couch. I will not. I would <laughs> like. I would like to get back to traveling at some point, but... Um... Not this weekend, unfortunately. And you know, by the way, that the Nashville SC's whole top of their PR staff used to work over here. That's right. Yeah. Um, so they'll be listening to this probably in the community full of roastings by text messages. So, <laughs> um, no, enjoy it. I'd like it out there at some point. I'd obviously like to see that new stadium when it goes up. And uh, best wishes to you guys. Hopefully we will cross paths down the road. Thank you. Can't wait to welcome you to Music City. Well, thanks to Jonathan for what is always a thorough and illuminating discussion. We appreciate him taking the time to join us. Be sure to give him a follow on Twitter and, uh, and and take a close look at his coverage of Philadelphia Union leading up to this match and beyond. Let's move on to Embrace Consensus. This is our uh, purportedly supposed to be our debate segment. We've yet to find a lot of points of differentiation this year, but maybe we can find a, a bit here in the question about Nashville's home form and what they can afford to do moving forward the rest of the year now. Simply put, has Nashville reached the point in the season where it's used up all its margin for error, where the points dropped at home figure is is done? You, you can expect, you can bank that you're going to drop some points at home every season. Mm-hmm. Every team in Major League Soccer can do that. But has Nashville used up its allotment already this season? And, and do they need to basically be perfect at home the rest of the way, Tim? Yeah, I think we're there. Perfect at home is obviously a high bar to clear, but Nashville's going to have to start stealing road points and, and not just stealing draws on the road to make up for the ones that they've already dropped in Nissan Stadium. It'd be one thing to draw Philadelphia Union if you had taken care of the expected earlier in the year. Um, Philadelphia Union is obviously a very good team, but 
CF Montreal and FC Cincinnati are not at this point in the season, and Nashville has given up six points that they could have uh, earned against those teams. You don't have the opportunity to say, okay, we'll, we'll chalk the Philadelphia Union game up as a draw because we've already taken care of business previously. They've already used up all three of their mulligans, so if the opponent is anything less than a supporter shield contender for the rest of the year, uh, you have to take all three points, I think. I don't think I come at it from quite as extreme a position, but I want to first off acknowledge... That of course, huge missed opportunities when mm-hmm. you know four of your draws at home are against teams that you this team will feel they should have beaten. Montreal times mm-hmm. two, Cincinnati, Miami. None of these teams are going to contend for MLS Cup. So disappointing results for sure. But I don't think that this team is at the zero margin for error point at home just yet. Now, if they drop points against all three remaining home opponents in this stretch, they could find themselves in that spot. The, the margin for error is certainly decreased. But I think where, I, where I'm different from you is that I see a little more opportunity on the road than I think maybe we've mm-hmm. acknowledged. Um, just six of the 14 remaining road matches are against teams that are currently sitting in playoff position. Now, Atlanta is sitting just outside it. That's obviously not an easy road match. So let's say half of those remaining road matches right. are against teams Nashville will feel like it should be. They go to Orlando FC2, and by that I mean Toronto, <laughs> of course, who will probably still be in Orlando on August 1st when those teams play, uh, although we certainly hope they're able to return home soon for their sake. Um, Miami twice, Cincinnati, Montreal. Of course, I acknowledge they have drawn these teams at home, yeah, but exactly, these are teams exactly. they will feel that's that going to be should. my rebuttal. I know in our fierce debate segment. I know, and it's just so angry and ferocious. Um, but, but really, I think yes, I'll acknowledge. Of course, Nashville drew four times and won just once against the teams I just mentioned. But it should expect to be favorites in most of the return visits, and so I, I don't think they will feel that it is stealing points on the road. It's taking matches they should take against teams they should have beaten at home. If you win maybe three of those six road matches, you take ties and a couple of others, you've essentially made up for the early slippage. They can afford to drop points to me against Philadelphia and Atlanta, as long as those are draws. They need to beat Chicago. And from then on, certainly the pressure is much higher. But I still think there is some margin for error. So shades of gray here that that we disagree just a bit, but... I see your point. Right. And we talk a lot about, and we talked about this when it came to the the undefeated season qualifier that I was not so sold on. What you need for the rest of the season is always a moving target. Uh, after the Saturday's game against the Union, it's going to be different than it is today. So once you kind of contextualize based on the incoming evidence, you can adjust kind of the course of what you expect and what you feel you need. And I think Nashville SC is, is well poised to make those adjustments as they go along. And obviously their hope is that they, they take a win in each and every remaining game. But uh, when they do get the results that they want and when they do get the results that they don't want, they can adjust course and kind of know what they need both at home and on the road and uh, yeah I will, i'll gravitate a bit toward your side of the spectrum at least uh when it comes to one thing and that is that when they have their full complement of players there's mm-hmm. very little margin for error at home yeah you know when you have Leal, when you have cadiz coming back uh, when you have zimmerman who's likely going to get called into u.s camp although after the birth of his son congratulations walker and sally um, Tucker's beautiful baby boy that, that could, you know, obviously change his international plans, but also means he won't be sleeping much if he is home. We both know that from experience. <laughs> um, I think definitely in those matches when Nashville does have its full complement of players, uh, it, it needs to take the three points 
regardless yeah, of who it's playing. Yeah, and that is actually a pretty good qualifier for what we've seen already this year. Some of these dropped points, including the one Saturday evening, came without a striker who probably could have made a bit of a difference in that mm-hmm. game had he not been sitting on the bench with Venezuela the following day. So certainly when you contextualize it through that lens, there's there's a little bit more, I guess, forgiveness in my in my opinion that the margin for error is going away. But again, the margin for error is what it is going forward. And once they get some wins, maybe it will kind of be built back up. They'll have that buffer back. And just a little context, as you mentioned, there will always be a moving target as to what's required uh, for the rest of the year. But we can kind of put a pin on what Nashville should aspire to, to accomplish at home from a points per match standpoint. Last year, Nashville had 1.7 points per match at home. You'd think that 1.7 mark at home, if you can get results in about half your road matches, is going to probably stand. That's what Nashville did last year, results in half the road matches. This year so far, points per match at home, 1.85. So a better performance, largely due to the lack of losses uh, at home. Uh, so certainly a loss or two will dramatically increase the, the pressure on this team. But with results in only half their home match or their road matches last year, Nashville should expect, I think, to exceed that rate this year. Then I think you're looking at, at a points per match that is above what Nashville would need to get into the playoffs at home right now. That's a lot of math. Let's move on to, to a little more narrative. And uh, the mailbag questions you guys sent in, once again, just never really cease to uh, to impress Finn Breenland reaches out I know Finn is a relatively new fan to MLS he's a big Liverpool guy um, so you know take that for what it's worth but but he, he he brings a global question in he says if money and availability were no object and you could bring in any one player across the world to finish out this season one season only Tim who would you bring in to win Nashville a title Robin Schrute of course. No, no, the answer, of course, <laughs> of course, is Lionel Messi. Not only is he the best player in the world, despite being 34 years old, he plays a position at central attacking midfielder where Nashville has gotten some uneven performances from Hani Mukhtar. Fortunately, he's also a very similar style of player, obviously a much better player than Hani Mukhtar. So he can be a plug and play sort of guy for the system that Nashville runs. And then you have a pretty good backup in Hani Mukhtar to, to step in when, when uh, Lionel Messi, for whatever reason, is unavailable to play for Nashville SC. The DP acquisition cost to get messy. <laughs> yeah, he, he made like $500 million from Barcelona <laughs> a couple of years ago. Well, he will forever, forever be playing for Mythical Inter Miami, along with a number of other European stars. Cavani, I think, plays for Mythical Miami. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the list of players that are connected to Miami via transfer rumors, of course, I'm talking about. So he might be, might be taken by Mythical Miami. But uh, if he's not able to come to Nashville, uh, I, I say Robert Lewandowski is my guy. Yeah, a, a big finisher. Mm-hmm. And he even looks just a little bit like Mike Jacobs. I think they could be long lost cousins. <laughs> I don't know if I'm crazy. Am I? Am I just way off on that? Every time I watch him play for Poland or or for Bayern, I'm like that, I, I just see a little bit of. of I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I'm crazy. No, I, I can see it. I certainly was not pulling it out of thin air. But now that you mention it, I, I can come around on that. My wife always tells me, "No, that's that's a terrible comparison." When I say somebody looks like <laughs> somebody else, so maybe maybe not. But I mean, the guy scored you know 41 goals in the Bundesliga this year, 34 the year before. If you want just a pure finisher who's going to finish everything that comes his way, uh, assuming you can create for the guy, you don't have to create much for the guy. He's going to finish. He's going to mm-hmm. take advantage of what you give him. I think. I think Lewandowski's my answer. But how can you fault Messi? Imagine for a moment, says John, that that we are interim managers of this team. What formation would we use to maximize the current roster? I think they're running it out. 
game after game. The 4-2-3-1 matches the talent that Nashville has, and that's not a mistake or a coincidence. The roster and the tactical approach were built in parallel and continue to be built in parallel. The one thing that we haven't seen in the last couple games, though we do see it pretty regularly, is Randall Layall on the left so he can cut in and shoot with that powerful right foot. Um, we've kind of seen maybe some wasted opportunities from him because he's coming in from the right where he's a little less comfortable, where he's a little less uh, kind of playing to his strengths, I guess you could say. One other thing that I might be interested in seeing, um, we will not see this with Gary Smith. He will always play two holding midfielders. It's something of a 4-1-4-1 or 4-3-3 formation with Dax McCarty in a more free role to get involved in the offense a little bit more while Anibal Godoy holds down the central midfield by himself. Well, it's something that McCarty even did a little bit unofficially against Montreal. We saw him get forward quite a bit and send in balls, especially after the uh, formerly the impact scored and, <laughs> and went up. You saw Dax get involved in that attack I feel like he, he feels like he does have that freedom just a little bit informally, even if it's not been. Yeah. It, when he was with Red Bulls, he was, he was still playing that number six role, but he was a much more free ranging six. And so we know that he has that ability, although it's been a little while since, and he's aged a little bit since that mm-hmm. time. He has to pick his moments now for sure. Right. Uh, I, I agree with you. I think it's four, two, three, one, just for fun, just to have something different to explore. I think a four, four, two could be fun with Leal and Mukhtar on the wings. It's not a place where Hani is traditionally thrived, but I think you could, you could make it work if you have Mukhtar in a bit of a free role where he can, he can roam inside and you can overlap a full backup up next mm-hmm. to him. Um, Alistair's service has been pretty good here lately, better than Lovitz's, although Lovitz is typically the one to get a little bit higher and he was far more active than anybody else, had a season high in touches against uh, Montreal, like 114 of them, something crazy mm-hmm. like that. But I think if, if you can work Hani a little more into the middle, but then you know send him down the wing when you need that width, complement him with a fullback, but then also have the two forwards up top, You know, at some point you look at this bench, of strikers and it's it's actually looking deep now like it was supposed to at the beginning of the year as Daniel Rios yeah. and Abu Dhabi get healthy Cadiz comes back in you know there are rumors about an Ake Loba coming in to be the seventh uh, striker on this team mm-hmm. I think there's there's potential there but you'd only want to do it against a team you felt you could dominate because if you're really bringing that fullback up high along the wing to complement you're giving Mukhtar that freedom you're going to create some defensive liabilities there. So I think it's a situation where when you welcome Cincinnati back to town, maybe it's something you try, you know, it's somebody that you yeah. want to experiment against, but, but not something that it's not, not in the spirit of the question, really. I don't think it maximizes the current roster against everybody. It would be a fun thing to see experimented with though. Yeah. You'd love to see him be able to kind of pour in some goals with that. And they've been pouring in goals regardless of, of formation a lot of times this year. Although, as we've mentioned, uh, not many of them coming, coming first in the game. Right. And the four two three one, I think definitely it, except for certain cases where that more traditional looking four four two is the way to go when Hani's mm-hmm. not uh, not in the mix. Um, Aaron asks whether Alex Mwil needs to be more productive to help the team succeed or whether his work rate serves the team better. Yeah, I think a lot of the time his l- lack of attacking position precision is worth it because of what he's able to do defensively. But if NSC plays against a team without serious threats out wide, for example, Philadelphia this weekend, which plays a fairly narrow formation if they don't have attacking threats from the width it might be worth it to see a guy like Abu Danladi who is much better attacking but maybe not quite as defensively sound to get in behind and and pin those fullbacks back a little bit because you aren't going to need the defensive cover that Muil can provide Trevor asks uh, the team struggles to connect the middle of the field to the attack 
through the middle of the field? What can the team do to create better quality opportunities apart from crosses and set pieces? And of course, we've seen a lot of crosses lately and, and a few set pieces of uh, the corner kick succeeding against uh, Toronto. Change in formation, philosophy, players, just better luck. I'm not positive. I agree with the premise. Gary Smith was asked about this after the Red Bull game. And um, the question was kind of specific to that game, but said more broadly. And he said, I don't think that it has been a problem other than this game to attack through the middle, to connect the, the midfield with the strikers. It hasn't been a consistent issue. So they are getting production from crosses, whether that's live ball or dead ball. But you don't produce the expected goals that Nashville has without succeeding through the middle. According to American Soccer Analysis, if you take out all set pieces, Nashville is second in the league in XG4 with 13.07 expected goals uh, through their 10 games. That's behind only Sporting Kansas City's 16.64. And SKC has played two more games than Nashville, so um, they, they are still higher on a game uh, per game basis, but it's pretty close there. So the film and stats kind of tell you there's not a huge issue connecting those lines. I think all that it would really take is kind of somebody like Hani Mukhtar having a really solid game, feeling much more comfortable because the consistency of his playing time and stuff like that makes it look better. I think the, the, this, the film and the stats kind of tell you that it's not as bad as it feels at times. And Mukhtar has looked a, a great deal sharper, I think, in the last couple of games mm -hmm. for this mm -hmm. team and, and connecting through the middle. Yeah, I think uh, in my in my game column that I posted Monday afternoon, I said easily the best game of the year for Mukhtar and McCarty together. Maybe not individually the best game for either of them, but the two of them together with all that room that they were given in midfield looked really good. Clubcountryusa.com for that and much more analysis of these matches that we don't have time to get to um, on this show. It, yeah, very few teams in Major League Soccer have scored more goals from open play uh, and not counting counterattacks than mm -hmm. Nashville SC. Certainly, there can be more consistency, and we've talked earlier about earlier in matches there needing to be some, but the middle of the pitch, I think, is starting to look a little sharper than it did uh, uh, maybe at, at moments earlier this season. Uh, Ryan asks, when do we stop being patient and start getting concerned with the lack of execution from the offense? Yeah, we just talked about this a segment ago, but it really is hard to say the answer. I think history will tell you over time, if you continue to rack up expected goals, the finishing is going to come around. The majority of Nashville's players are historically average or better finishers. I said it can just be a thing at times. It's been a thing for Chicago Fire for three or four years running now where they just consistently underachieve their expected goals, despite having really talented players at times. So this Nashville team seems to be suffering from that right now. Is it going to last the entire season? It's hard to say. I think at the end of the homestand, if a lack of finishing costs Nashville more points, like we saw Saturday night, if, it, if a lack of finishing turns a draw into a loss or a win into a draw, you can really start to get queasy and say, okay, with a lot of road games coming up, this finishing might be a, an issue for us. Sure, and I think you can also look at, at the progression that's happened since this point last season and, and even toward the latter part of last year and say that improvement is not only possible but likely as the season progresses. Yeah, and I think when you look at the return of Daniel Rios, who's a guy who is one of the better finishers on this team when healthy, just hasn't been healthy frequently enough for this MLS side yet. If he can stay healthy, I think you'll see a pretty significant step forward. Not only from him, I think he can inspire some of the teammates to uh, competitively say, if I don't finish better, Daniel's going to take my spot. And that could provide a, a, a rising tide that lifts all ships. 
Thank you all for the questions. Keep them coming throughout the week, and we'll bank them up and give some thought to them, especially if they're a little more you know, evergreen in nature and not as performance-based you know, week to week. Just uh, tag each, each of us on, uh, on Twitter, at Club Country USA, at West Bowling TN. Had to stop for a second because I just recently changed my, uh, my handle to make my name first. That's Thanks for the question. That's going to confuse me. That's going to confuse me. <laughs> <laughs> just think about my name, as I'm sure you do every day, all the time. It'll be easy to conjure. Uh, let's go outside in now. And, you know, what we haven't done lately is take a look around the league, other than talking about, you know, upcoming and, and past opponents. Um, let's discuss some surprises and some disappointments in Major League Soccer. As we're now 10 games in, we're almost a third of the way through the season. Is there a team that stands out to you as maybe the most pleasant surprise that you didn't see coming this year? Yeah, I think it's probably LA Galaxy. Obviously, when you have a guy like Javier Hernandez on your team, there's an expectation that you're going to perform pretty well. But Chicharito scored two goals all of last year. He scored that in the first game this year, quite famously. But uh, you know they seem to be much more consistent under Greg Vanny than they have been gosh, since I can remember. So, um, you know, even though I would have expected them to take a step forward, the fact that they currently sit third place in the West is probably a little bit better than I was expecting of them. And hopefully they can keep that up. It's been a great story to see. And when you hear Chicharito open up about some of his personal struggles, you can't help but root for the guy, even if maybe mm-hmm. when he's been wearing a Mexico kit or, you know, Manchester United in the past, many of us are not not prone to root for him on the pitch <laughs> personally. And I know at West Ham, a little bit of mixed feelings there from, yeah. from folks in, in East London. Yeah. I always thought he needed more of a chance. He, he was not given enough playing time there, man. Well, he is, uh, he's taking it in uh, Los Angeles and making the yeah. most of it in his second year there. Um, as I look at the table and think about who really has jumped out to me, I want to give a shout to Colorado. They sit uh, five points back of L.A., fourth mm-hmm. place in the table. Uh, they're building on a, on a good foundation of youth there, and I feel like they are Western Conference Nashville in a lot of ways, where whatever happens – league-wide perception is never going to be oh look at Colorado man they're so attractive they're so sexy they're they're great they just kind of show up and and get the job done now they didn't get it done in Kansas City a 3-1 loss in their last match but they've they've jumped up and taken care of business uh against a number of different they've beaten Minnesota earlier in the year Houston Dallas, Cincy. Okay, so let's look at their schedules. Not been the best schedule, but I like what they're doing out there. I like how. But, but against against weak schedules in the past, they haven't taken care of business. That's, That's true. Thank you for bolstering forward. my yeah. my argument yeah. there. I, I do like what they're doing. I, do I think they're you know an, an MLS Cup contender? We'll see. Doubt it. But you know, in in a tough Western Conference, they sit in fourth place, and I think they're to be commended. Mm-hmm. At, speaking of the Western Conference, I think Dallas to me is is an immense disappointment so mm-hmm. far this season, uh, and. You know, I'll, I'll say that despite the fact that they just beat top of the table New England in their last outing, an awesome home performance. Other than that, and maybe that's a sign of improvement, um, just 10 points this year, just a couple of wins in their first 10, and have lacked so much of the sharpness as, Tim, they're a team that is among the best in this country at developing young talent and selling it. Reggie Cannon, Weston McKinney, who came up and never even really played for Dallas. Mm-hmm. And yet they never seem to harness what they need to turn what they're doing into MLS Cup contention. Yeah, there's been a philosophical debate over the past several years in MLS circles of how do you 
be a selling team while still winning. And Dallas has not been able to find that balance, despite probably being the most successful selling team. Um, Red Bulls, obviously a, a contender for that Philly, a contender for that now after the Aronson and McKenzie sales. But this is a team that has pumped out so much talent. And there is so much talent in North Texas. That is they should be pumping out a ton of talent, but they have not been able to hold on to guys and use them to rack up wins, which is kind of the, the core functionality of a soccer team. Yeah, and we'll see if that New England win is a road back to something resembling success for them. What about you? Any disappointments that jump out to you? Yeah, I think three of the highest four uh, roster spends in this league. FC Cincinnati, I think, was a predictable uh, bad team. But yep. Miami and Toronto, obviously, they each have their own things going on. Miami with the, the sanctions that I think really demoralized this team. And Toronto obviously has been playing without Josie Altidore, who is one of the highest paid players in MLS. He's away from the team um, for you know, for personal disagreements with, with management, I think he's just not going to return to that team. So kind of the spend on the roster might be a little bit exaggerated because he's a guy who's pretty much not on the roster, but the expectations for Toronto year over year have always been so high. And frankly, in both years of Miami's existence, the expectations have been high. Now we saw last year that they didn't necessarily live up to that. And I don't think we expected them to do it this year, but we certainly weren't expecting those two teams to be 12th and 13th on the table either. Yeah, absolutely not. I think Toronto being the biggest, the bigger surprise, certainly right. a, a two nil loss to Cincinnati um, at quote unquote home, but at least it wasn't in Cincy. They, they lose two nil uh, just, just they're in shambles. And I think, uh, you know, as I was driving home from that Nashville three, two win over Toronto, I thought this team might just be broken. This Toronto team yeah. might just be shattered after giving up three come from behind goals in that one against, against Nashville. The Armas out buzz is already building uh, 10 games in his tenure there. So I am, am pro inertia when it comes to coaches. I don't like calling for people's jobs. I don't like mm-hmm. advocating for guys to move on. 10 games in would be really early. Yeah. But when you have on field struggles and you have a situation with Josie, your, your highest yeah. paid you know player, whether or not he's a fit to continue with the organization, you know, the, the coach's job is to try to smooth over those differences. And it sounds like he might be exacerbating them. That is really a tough situation for them. Yeah. And I like Armas a lot. I thought he was done wrong getting fired by Red Bull last offseason, but it just is not, it is not, <laughs> not a situation that's working out for him in Toronto. Yonder Cadiz is headed home. Venezuela finishes fifth in their Copa America group. And Cadiz was on the bench for that last game. And if just for a while there, it looked like they might be able to sneak out a draw against Peru to stay alive. Then Ecuador also gets a result it needed against Brazil. Yeah. Venezuela, the only team in that group not to advance to the knockouts. And somehow I think Nashville SC fans are not too mad about that as Yonder's loan has been officially announced to be extended now. He's here the rest of the year and headed back to Music City. Yeah, and we've been very open over the course of the life of this podcast that we expected nothing less than him at least staying until the end of this season so for that news to become official for that news to become known is is something that is expected for us as we've mentioned previously nashville is probably in need of a striker who's going to perform pretty consistently they haven't had him since returning from this international break because the uh, copa extended beyond the international break so uh, when he comes back in presumably this week we'll see if he can be the difference maker that this club has been looking for if he can finish a goal or two and really kind of change the momentum of, of the finishing that we've been talking about here 
And for some of you, you're probably thinking, man, they're how many minutes into this podcast now and they hadn't really even gone in depth into Yonder sticking around and being inside in or inside, <laughs> if you will. But I think that's it, right? It's 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 news that we both expected to come. Um, I think the only question was, you know, will it be an extension of the loan or will it be right. an outright purchase with a short-term contract? And the extension of the loan, really the best case scenario for a Nashville team that is still shopping for a third DP, according to some reports, that has a deep striker bench and that allows Cadiz to be more of a luxury than a necessity. It's a, it's dating rather than a marriage at this point. Yeah. I think the situation that Benfica is in both financially and um, in, including with yonder, there's been a question of uh, whether they are following the spirit of the law when it comes to loaning some players within the Portuguese league. I think the fact that yonder is, has been one of the guys who is um, he's not, guilty of anything, but he's, his loan has been drawn into question from the Benfica and probably gave Nashville a little bit more negotiating power to say, Hey, we want him through the end of our 2021 season. And then we'll see from there rather than Benfica being able to say, Hey, you gotta, you gotta exercise this clause or get out. So as Cadiz comes back in from way out yonder in South America, we will head to the final whistle. Now so much to digest this time of year content recommendations for you what have you been taking in here lately to try to to summarize all the stuff into one place (laughs) yeah something that i just listened to yesterday was the stats bomb podcast now stats bomb is a a data provider similar to uh, i think fans are probably familiar with opta they are the official stat provider of major league soccer stats bomb is one of their competitors their podcast is infrequently published it was like the first (laughs) one in a few months here ted knutson is a guy who has a background in front office of clubs michelin and brentford so even though it is mostly a podcast about data and stats he has a lot of good stories he was in personnel acquisition for for those clubs and kind of figuring out who are guys that we can get ahead of the curve on and and either make some money on a sale or or find some undervalued guys and if you listen back to our second episode you'll know that's something that nashville sc is very interested in so as much as the the stats and the information is interesting kind of the the thought process and figuring out how to think about these things is a really interesting part of that sounds like a great companion listening tool to those who are interested Interested and, and they're sticking through to the end of, of our podcast and the numbers that we throw in there. Dense, but also some, some strong narrative-driven conversation as well. Uh, for me, it's, it's, a, it's a book. Uh, the Fall of the House of FIFA. As we talk about Euros, as we talk about World Cup qualifying, David Kahn writes an extensive, just completely meaty recap of the investigation that led to the downfall of Sepp Blatter. It goes into the the craziness as close to home as Trinidad and Tobago and Copa America Cincinnario and and everything that led to the Department of Justice investigation Mm -hmm. and the arrests. And again, here, it's it's tons of names in it, tons of minute details, but it's one that I've been listening to as an audio book because you can still follow it, you know, even if it's being told to you instead of mm-hmm. instead of having to read and look in the glossary at the end. Because it's well well written. Um, David Kahn is, is just an incredible writer, journalist, and uh, is something I would certainly recommend, especially if you like uh, the schadenfreude that comes with some of these executives. <laughs> their misdeeds coming to light and consequences being reaped, as, as so many of them did uh, did suffer. Bold prediction for the Philly match. Yeah, I think, uh, as I mentioned before, the the Philadelphia Union is not the Philadelphia Union that you've come to expect over the past couple of years. This is kind of a changing of the guard type of year for them. And so I think Nashville needs to get at least a draw against this Union team. It's, it's a lot to ask to get a, a home win against a team that's as high on the table as they are, even if I think they've lost a step or two. I think a 2-2 draw seems like something that would be exciting. I think Nashville scores first. And it's a back-and-forth game. 
Um, maybe maybe Nashville scores first and finally gives up gives up the, a lead like they haven't yet this year. But I think a two two draw and a really exciting game in front of a lot of fans and a slightly earlier Saturday evening is is something that would uh, kind of be perfect for the narratives and perfect for kind of building this club's reputation as a as a an event in in Music City. I think I could I could feel that coming. Um, and while I don't sit here and, and give match predictions when I'm on the call as I will be Saturday on ninety four nine, I think this is. Uh, another match when Nashville's going to concede. I, I definitely don't see a clean sheet here. It's a Philadelphia team that scored nine goals in its last four matches, and I could see a 2-2 type of, of game, certainly. They just came off a 3-3, did, uh, did yeah. Philadelphia, and of course Nashville with a 3-2 earlier last week. Yeah, it's been four straight now since Nashville has earned a clean sheet. That's the longest stretch in their MLS history, and yet I think number five seems readily apparent to be coming. A clean sheet against Philadelphia would be a Herculean performance. Totally agree, I think. When you look at the teams that Philadelphia has has racked up some of these goals against, uh, Portland is is probably a better team than Nashville at this point. Atlanta in Atlanta is probably comparable. So yeah, it's not like they're they're scoring three goals against Chicago every time out. Although they also are doing that. I thought you said Poland at first and not Portland, and I was like, are we back on yeah. Lewandowski now? Because <laughs> yeah, yeah, Lewandowski on the mind. Poland versus Nashville. Now you've got me thinking how that would go down. I think that would be a tough <laughs> for the boys in cold. It would put the war in Warsaw. We'll just say that. Hey, there we go. Yeah, we could all say that we saw it. All right, on that terrible note, we'll go ahead and, and say goodbye to you. Uh, Nashville and Philadelphia, 7 p.m. on Saturday night. Get your 4th of July plans going with that match the night before the holiday. And come back and listen to us next Tuesday. He is Tim Sullivan at Club Country USA. I'm Wes Bowling at West Bowling TN. Thanks to Moon Taxi for the music, ESPN 94.9 for the highlights. Be sure to rate, review, subscribe, tell a friend, and follow us on Twitter. And thanks to the 440 Sports Network for keeping our microphones on and our access to the podcast upload system intact. We will talk to you next Tuesday. <laughs>